So if you will open your Bibles to John's Gospel, chapter 15. And as you're turning there, I want you to consider this question. You've heard this question before. What is the chief end of man? What is the goal God has for each of you and for me? We have a teaching tool in Reformed and Presbyterian churches called a catechism, which is just a set of questions and answers to try to teach scriptural truths. In our Westminster Shorter Catechism, question number one is what I just asked you. What is the chief end of man? And the answer that we find there is to glorify God and to enjoy Him forever. Part of God's biggest aim and goal for us is that we have joy. Now that in and of itself ought to stop you It ought to give you pause to think for just a moment of how gracious and amazing that is. That the God of the universe is a generous God who's concerned about your joy. Now, why would the authors of that learning tool, that catechism, put our joy in the answer to the very first question it asks. Well, they did it because it's biblical. They did it because the Bible is overflowing with promises about our joy, with exhortations for us to be full of joy, to rejoice. If you look carefully through the Scriptures, one of the, one of the promises of the coming of Messiah is that he would bring joy. He would usher in an age of joy. Uh, It's one of the promises and expectations of eternity that we should have joy. There there are boo coodles of references about joy in the scriptures. Um, Isaiah, the prophet Isaiah, is full of references about joy. Here's just one that I was reading yesterday. It's in chapter 35, so it's a fairly short chapter in Isaiah. It's initially about the return of God's people from exile. Of course, ultimately, it's about the coming of Messiah. And even more ultimately -er than that, it's about the return of Christ to usher in the end of time. There are lots of things promised in this chapter. But it ends like this. Here's the last verse of Isaiah 35. And the ransomed of the Lord shall return and come to Zion with singing. Everlasting joy shall be upon their heads. They shall obtain gladness and joy. And sorrow and sighing shall flee away. When the angel announced to the shepherds the birth of Jesus, what did he say to them? I bring you good news of great joy. When Paul is praying for all the churches that he ministers to, when he's writing to them, he's praying for them to have joy. It is a big deal in the Bible. It is a big deal to God that we have 
joy. But it's not always easy. It's not always easy to have joy, is it? It hasn't been easy in the days of a global pandemic. But truthfully, it's never all that easy in a fallen world anyway. Life in this fallen world is is not always compatible with joy. And even the joy that we do experience often has a shelf life. It expires. It's fleeting. It fades. As we continue in John's Gospel this morning, In his farewell discourse where he's preparing his disciples for his departure, Jesus is sharing with his disciples the secret to having joy. I want you to listen for that secret as we read this passage. Stand, if you're able, for the reading of God's word. John chapter 15, verses 9 through 16. As the Father has loved me, so have I loved you. Abide in my love. If you keep my commandments, you will abide in my love just as I have kept my Father's commandments and abide in his love. These things I've spoken to you that my joy may be in you and that your joy may be full. This is my commandment that you love one another as I have loved you. Greater love has no one than this that someone lay down his life for his friends. You are my friends if you do what I command you. No longer do I call you servants, for the servant does not know what his master is doing, but I've called you friends. For all that I've heard from my father, I've made known to you. You did not choose me, but I chose you and appointed you that you should go and bear fruit and that your fruit should abide so that whatever you ask, the father in my name. He may give it to you. May God bless the preaching of his inspired, inerrant, infallible, and authoritative word. Let's pray together. Father, indeed this morning as we have already sung, would you show us Christ? Would you show us specifically the joy of Christ and the love of Christ? And in showing us these things, would you change our lives? Would you make us fit for this task that you have chosen us for and appointed us to? That we might bring you glory. We ask all this in Jesus' name and for his sake. Amen. Please be seated. So in these verses, Jesus has quite a lot to share with his disciples to prepare them for his departure. But he gives in these verses a reason for sharing all that he does. Verse 11, he says, I'm telling you all this so you'll have joy. And notice exactly what he says and how he says it, because this speaks to the nature of our, of our problem, our joy problem in a fallen world. The way Jesus phrases this speaks to it. 
He says he wants his joy to be in us. See, to really have joy in a fallen world, it's got to be internal. It's got to get inside of us somehow, because frankly, there's so much in the world external to us, in our circumstances, in the things that we face, that steal our joy and kill our joy. But not if it's Jesus' joy, not if it's inside of us. He also says that he wants our joy to be full. He wants it to be complete. He doesn't want it to be fleeting and temporary like the joy of the world often is. This is what he wants for us. His joy in us and full, complete, lasting. That's what he wants for us. So now let's back up to what he said should lead to us having this joy. Because he said, I'm saying these things so that my joy may be in you and may be full. So what are the these things that he said? Back up to verse 9. There's one explicit command that he gives us, uh, one imperative that Jesus gives in these verses, one thing that he tells us to do. Verse 9, abide in my love. Now, earlier in this chapter, we saw him say, abide in me. And so he's getting a little more specific here. He's, He's spelling it out a little bit, fleshing it out a little bit more what he means by that. Abiding in me is abiding specifically in my love. Abide. And we talked earlier. means remain, stay there, continue. All right? Now what does that mean? Abide in my love. I don't want that. We can't afford for that to just be some Christian cliche or expression that we volley back and forth to one another. If we don't know what it means or how to do it. How do you abide in the love of Jesus? Let me try to to flesh this out a bit, explain it a bit. What I think Jesus means here, what I think Scripture gives us here, abiding in his love means that the love of Jesus should be the context in which we live our lives. The love of Jesus ought to be the water in which we swim The air that fills our lungs when we breathe, immersed in it, saturated with it. If that's to be the case, then certainly the first step would have to be that we've got to know the love of Jesus. That's one of the greatest tasks of a Christian. To know the love of Jesus. It is a lifelong task. It is a nearly impossible task. One of my favorite prayers in Scripture, uh, one that I'm often praying when I pray for y'all, if I don't know a specific need or something or situation that you're facing to pray for, I will pray Paul's prayer from Ephesians 3. That he prays for those believers there. Here's part of what he says. He says, I'm praying for you to be able to comprehend the incomprehensible. I'm praying for you to know something that surpasses knowledge. Now what in the world is he talking about when he's praying that? 
He's talking about the love of Christ. Right? How wide and how long and deep. You can't know it if you don't have supernatural help. Two things in our verses today that further point to how how hard it is to fully grasp the love of Jesus that we're called to abide in. The first we see in in verse 9. The love Jesus has for us, it's the same kind of love the Father has for him. As the Father has loved me, so have I loved you. Whoa. Think about that for just a minute. What kind of love is that? It's it's got to be eternal love. It's certainly powerful love. It, it, unending, unchanging. Uh, later in verses 12 and 13, Jesus basically tells his disciples, the way that I've loved you is the definition of what love is. The way I have loved you is the greatest love the world has ever known. Lay down my life for you. Think about the sacrifice there. And put it in its right context. Because we, we, we know that other people have laid their lives down for other people. But never before has God himself in the flesh allowed himself to be ripped apart from the Trinity and the eternal love and fellowship there to lay his life down and suffer in our place, all because he loved us. That's the kind of love we're to abide in. That's the secret to our joy. You know, as I worked on these verses this week and as they worked on me, right, there's so much contained here. So one of the things I had to decide is, how is all this stuff connected? How does it relate both to abiding in Jesus' love and for having Jesus' joy in us? And how I eventually connected these dots, what I began to see, all these other things in this passage are the ways in which the love of Jesus changes and transforms us as we abide in it. Right, so that's the blank. As some of you have been, there's a blank in the outline. That's the blank. We're abiding in the transforming love of Jesus. And, and this is one of the beautiful mysteries of the gospel and of gospel transformation and of sanctification, to use the theological term. As we abide in his love, that love changes us from the inside out. And all the ways in which we are changed become for us sources of joy. So if you're looking at that outline that's in the worship guide, you'll see four areas where abiding in the transforming love of Jesus leaves its mark, has its impact. Four areas in our obedience, in our relationships, in our status 
and in our purpose. So the first thing we see connected to abiding in Jesus' love and of our having this joy that Jesus speaks of is obedience. Verse 10, if you keep my commandments, you will abide in my love. Now, pause with me here so that we can be very careful together to not read something that is not here. This is not saying, if you keep my commandments, I will love you. Though that's what 99% of all of us instinctively and intuitively think and read and understand. The love of Jesus is not contingent on any of our actions or behaviors. The love of Jesus is not contingent on any of our actions or behaviors. This statement that Jesus makes is not about his loving us. As if his love somehow hangs in the balance. The statement Jesus makes is about our abiding in that love. The love is an already reality. Verse 9, I have loved you. Verse 13, right, for the disciples it was, it was an implication. I will lay down my life for you. For us, it's already happened. It's done. He has loved us. He has laid down his life for us. Jesus' love for us is not contingent upon or conditioned by any of our actions. One of the precious truths of the gospel that we need to rest in, bask in, repeat to ourselves every single day, is that there is nothing any of us could do to cause Jesus to love us any more than he already does. Nor is there anything that we could ever do to cause him to love us any less. Do you believe that? There is nothing any of us could do to make him love us more and not a single thing you can do, child of God, that you could do to make him love you any less than he does right now. That's the gospel. The place of our obedience is not in acquiring the love of Jesus, but of our abiding in it, remaining in it, enjoying it. An important key to understanding this is in the second half of verse 10, where Jesus is mentioning his own obedience, his own keeping of his father's commands. By and large, here's another 99% thing. By and large, here's what we do. We read that. We read about Jesus' own obedience to the father. And we think, okay, well, here's my example to follow. Jesus obeyed perfectly. I need to obey like Jesus obeyed. And that's a pretty dumb place to start, actually. If that's the first place that our minds are going when we read about Jesus' perfect obedience and say, oh, I need to imitate that. Y'all, that's dumb. That's an impossible standard for us to meet. We can't do it. We cannot obey like Jesus obeyed. 
So there needs to grow in us, develop in us, somewhere else, some other place that we instantly go to in our minds when we read about Christ's perfections. The first thing we should think of is not imitation, but imputation. Not, I need to imitate what Jesus did, but, oh, Jesus did what I could never do. And he gives me credit for having done it. That's imputation. Christ's perfect record of righteousness credited to us. And if you want to go even deeper and more fully appreciate the beauty of the gospel, it's actually a double imputation. Not a double amputation, that's bad. Right? A double imputation. And, and here's the two parts of that. Our sin and rebellion imputed to Jesus. Where Paul says, he who knew no sin became sin for us. And the second half of that double imputation is his righteousness imputed to us. It's the great exchange that happens in the gospel. Our sin for his righteousness. That is the first thing that we should think of when we read of Jesus' perfect obedience to the Father. He did that for me. He did what I can't do. And I get credit for it. And that is where our obedience comes from. That's what our obedience flows out of. That he loved me enough to sacrifice himself for me, to bless me with the record of his perfect righteousness. Y'all, to be loved like that, to begin to grasp that kind of love, changes and transforms me from the inside out so that my obedience is now in response to that. It's now in response to that amazing and sacrificial love. And here's the kicker. It's because of that imputed righteousness. It's because the Father now looks on us as if we were as perfectly righteous as Christ. That's the only reason he accepts any of our feeble attempts at obedience anyway. Calvin said all of our attempts at obedience ought to be rejected. Because they're imperfect and unholy. But because God is already perceiving us as righteous because of what Jesus has done, he accepts our feeble, humble, imperfect attempts as being righteous. It's a means by which we continue to abide in the love of Jesus. And therefore, it's a means by which we have joy. Second area that's transformed by Jesus' love. Second thing that's a source of joy is, is in our relationships. So if we have any doubt as to what commandments Jesus has in view when he links abiding in his love with our keeping his commandments, he gives us one. Perhaps the most important one. Verse 12. Love one another as I have loved you. Now when we do this, 
however imperfectly that we do it, because truly none of us is going to love another like Jesus has loved us. But as we do it, faulty though it will be, it will be for us a source of joy. It will be evidence of having been changed and transformed by his love. Because none of us loves sacrificially, naturally. Our natural bent is to preserve and protect, not to sacrifice. Our natural bent is to guard our self-interest, not to consider others more important than ourselves. We only begin to do that as our hearts have been gripped by the reality that it's been done for us by Jesus. Third area of transformation and source of joy. Our status has been changed by the love of Jesus. Um, This builds from 13 through the first part of 15. Greater love has no one than this, Jesus says, that someone lay down his life for his friends. You are my friends if you do what I command you. No longer do I call you servants. So for Jesus to call his disciples, for Jesus to call his followers friends is stunning. The the co-creator of the universe, the second person of the Trinity, stoops so low in grace and mercy to call former rebels and enemies friends. Think about all the other religions of the world. Think about all these other deities placing their demands on their worshipers. Sacrifice to me. Appease me. Placate me. Seek, if you can, to turn away my wrath and anger. But our God and Savior stoops down to us, calls us friends, says, I didn't come to be served. I came to serve. I came to give my life as a ransom for many. I came to turn away the wrath and anger that you justly deserve. I came not for you to sacrifice to me. I came to be your sacrifice. I came not to lord my authority over you and my power and make fearful subjects out of you. I came to know you and love you intimately as friends. Now, here again, we've got to be careful what we read here. This is not, you become my friends if you do what I command, but you are. You already are my friends If you do what I command. See, obedience doesn't earn friendship. It characterizes friendship. It it proves it. It's evidence of it. Friends of Jesus, they obey him. It's just what they do. It's how they naturally, or actually supernaturally, respond to his Love. It, it, it's how we respond to his gracious condescension. Fourth and final area of transformation. Our purpose is amazingly transformed by Jesus' love for us. It's a tremendous source 
of joy. And there are layers to this purpose that you see here. The, the, the first layer is that this is something Jesus reveals to us, right? In, in verse uh, 15, that, that's part of what it means to be a friend rather than a servant. Because servants just are expected to do what they're told. No questions asked. You don't need to know the why. Just do it. But that's not so with Jesus. He, he's revealed to us his purposes, his will, his plan, his heart. Right? Haven't we seen that again and again in this gospel? Right? Where he says, all that the Father has given to me, I'll, I'll hold tight. I will hold them fast. I won't lose a single one of them. I'm, I'll hold them to the end. I will get them safely home. He, he lets us in on his purpose. Verse 16 says he's appointed us to to bear fruit, specifically to go and bear fruit. And so in addition to the various types of of fruits of the gospel and fruits of the spirit that we talked about a couple of weeks ago, here we also have a picture of the fruit of ministry and mission, the, the fruit of others coming to follow Jesus through our labors and through our lives. It's a remarkable privilege and position to be used by Jesus in this way. But he gives us two very important safeguards here. Cautions against pride and against presumption. Lest any of us think that we've got this new status of being Jesus' friends, that we've been appointed and sent on mission, lest we think any of that is because of something in us. Jesus reminds us of two things. Number one, this wasn't our idea. It's not our doing. We didn't sign up or volunteer for this. He chose us. Verse 16. It it could not be stated any more plainly or pointedly. You did not choose me, he says. And in first century culture, that was the norm, right? Disciples looked for a good rabbi to follow and said, hmm, he seems to have a pretty good game going on. I'll, I'll go follow him. I, I'm, I'm going to choose to follow him. That was the norm for the day. That's not what Jesus has done here. We are friends of Jesus and appointed ambassadors by Jesus only at his calling and his bidding. So that's the first reminder. Second, any success that we have is dependent on. Success. Any fruit that we bear is granted to us by the Father when we ask for it in Jesus' name. So friends, I want you to think about this this week. I want you to take stock of joy in your life. I want you to take time to consider and meditate upon How abiding in the transforming love of Jesus, specifically in these four areas, can be a source for you of real, internal, complete joy. Father, would you enable that process to happen? Lord, that we would simmer on this like a crock pot all week long. 
thinking about our joy, thinking about how gracious you are to be concerned about our joy, how gracious you are through the love of Christ to give us a means for joy, about the graciousness of how the love of Christ actually changes us from the inside out. fuels and forms obedience in our hearts that's not out of duty, it's not out of dread or fear, but it's out of absolute joy and delight. Father, would you fuel our joy this week? Would you enable our abiding in the transforming love of Jesus? We ask it in his name.